The Bible is not a fairy tale crafted by ancient people to give a sense of meaning to life. It is an account of reality. The cosmos is not just a succession of brute facts. It is the plotline of a grand story that God is telling through the verifiable events of history. So writes Nancy Piercy. When I was a child, we had a fish tank, a tropical fish tank, and we had fish like neon tetras and guppies and loaches. And I remember looking at that fish tank and being mesmerised by the fish in the tank as they swam back and forth and round and round. And much as I liked my fish, I realised that fish don't rank very high on the cuddly scale. They're rarely used in adverts that sell things like toilet paper or chocolate or diamonds. And the reason is because they rank low on the cuteness scale compared to things like puppies or teddy bears, which rank much higher. But I still felt affection towards my fish. Now, there were too many for me to give names to, but they were still somewhat precious to me. And what I learned is that you must not overfeed them, you must keep the temperature right in the tank, and you must keep the tank clean. Well, this one time we went away for a holiday or a break or something for a few days. And so my parents put some extra food in the tank for the fish. It was these smelly fish flakes that the fish loved. And in fact, even now I can remember the smell and the feel of these fish flakes and the sound as you opened the little canister which the fish flakes were in. Anyway, we set the temperature right and then we left. Well, move on a few days, and we are returning from our trip. We came in the door, we ran into the living room to see how the fish were doing. We thought maybe they'd be a bit hungry, because they probably scarfed down the few days' worth of food in the first couple of hours. Kind of like an aquatic, all-you-can-eat buffet. But what met us as we walked in wasn't a tank full of hungry fish. It was a tank full of dead fish. They were all belly up, most of them floating at the top. I think that there were maybe one or two survivors whose success unfortunately paled into insignificance compared to the mass carnage that was before our eyes. And I remember in my young mind that it was rather disturbing. Not as disturbing as if one of our cats had died. Remember that fish aren't as cute as furry animals. But nonetheless, it was disturbing. So of course we mounted an investigation. Was there a psychopath sucking loach uh, hiding among the other fish? And if so, were there signs that we should have seen it coming? Was he so sick of being a bottom feeder that he decided to take it out on the others? Maybe the reason wasn't so nefarious. Maybe it was as simple as fish running out of food. Maybe they starved to death. Maybe we thought the fish drowned. But we quickly discounted that line of inquiry. But then as we surveyed the crime scene, we discovered the reason behind the mass fishicide before us. And it was quite simple. The temperature of the tank was too high. The fish died because it was too hot. Whoever had set the temperature before we left had set it too high. Or there was some kind of a power outage. And then when it reset, it was too high. And while we were away, I imagined that the fish were swimming around merrily. And I imagine that one fish, let's call him Seamus, uh, noticed that it was a bit warmer than usual. And perhaps Seamus pointed out his observations to the other fish, but they weren't having any of it. Maybe Seamus tried to explain that the water was getting warmer and he was starting to feel quite uncomfortable. Maybe he then started to panic 
And the other fish started to panic as they realised that what was happening around them wasn't very good at all. And maybe they thought, maybe they realised that Seamus actually had been onto something all along, but by then it was too late. Maybe this is how it unfolded. Or maybe not, but I guess we'll never know. And the reason why we'll never know is twofold. Number one, the fish were dead. That's the main reason. But also remember that even if the fish were alive, they cannot communicate with humans. This is the second reason that we'll never know what actually happened, because we don't speak fish, and because fish don't speak human. They just swim around, open and close their mouths, and don't blink. But here's the thing. Even if the fish were alive, and even if we found out a way to communicate with them, I have a hunch that that wouldn't have helped um, us much. It wouldn't have helped us to explain that things were changing in the water around them. And why do I say this? Because the fish had no concept of water. Their world was water, and because it was everywhere, it was like it didn't exist. Their world was the tank, and they wouldn't have even known that they were swimming in water because water was their world. Fish probably don't have a word for wet in their vocabulary because wet isn't a concept for them. But wet is their reality. In fact, the only time a fish would even come close to realising that wet existed is if someone took them out of the tank and they experienced non-wet. Only then would they have a reference point for wet. The fish in the tank had a worldview, but they were oblivious to it, even though it impacted their everyday. The idea of walking or air or blinking, or lungs, would have been foreign concepts to them because it was not part of their worldview. At the end of each month, uh, I will be taking a break from our usual sermon series to focus this time to try to increase our confidence in the biblical worldview. This is a great time for you to bring your friends who maybe are searching uh, the last Sunday of every month, and I'm calling this series Ultimate Questions. Anyway, we are just like those fish. We all have a worldview. We all have a way of describing reality that makes sense to us. And because it's such a sense of who we are, we're not even aware of it any more than the fish are aware of the water that they're swimming in. And just as it would need a human or a cat, someone outside of the system to explain to the fish the concept of wet, so we need somehow to see outside of our worldview to help us understand that indeed we have a worldview. And maybe you're thinking or saying, you know what, I don't have a worldview, I just live my life. Well, you're only saying that because of the particular worldview you have. There's no way of escaping it. Now, I've travelled to many countries during my life, but it wasn't until I went to Asia that I realised how powerful my worldview was. It was in Asia that my worldview was exposed. My time in Asia was a three-year assault on what I consider to be normal. Over my time there, I grew to love Asia. The hustle and the bustle, the skyscrapers, the sheer humanity everywhere I looked, the crowded roads, the strange food I'd never tasted before, the language written in a script I had no idea how to interpret, the deep respect for tradition and elders, and at the same time, the rampant need and the poverty in so many countries, the sights and the smells and the sounds. It was sensory overload. And time and time again, I realised that even though we're we, we are fellow residents on planet Earth, we look at life very, very differently, uh, depending on our culture. We have different 
cultures that impact our worldviews, but it took me to get out of my, but it took me getting out of my culture to realize that I even have a culture. Now here's a more local example. I cannot tell you how many Canadians I've met who say to me, I love your accent. To which I wittily respond, well yours isn't too bad either. And then they invariably laugh and say, I don't have an accent. And then I laugh and say something like, go over to the UK and tell them that. We have a good chuckle. And then we carry on with our day. You see, we judge people by ourselves. We are the normal ones and everyone else is either to the left or to the right of us. We're dead centre. And when we're talking about accents, the stakes aren't very high. You are free to consider you normal and me a little strange. That's fine. But when it comes to worldviews, particularly our concept of truth, the stakes are a little higher. Because how can the Hindu who believes in millions of gods be right, and the Christian or the Muslim who believes in one god be right, and the atheist who believes that there isn't god, any god, be right? It's simple maths. Either there is one god, or there are millions of gods, or there is no god. All three cannot be right. But we live in a culture that treats worldviews like accents. You have yours and I have mine, and I might laugh at yours, or secretly wish that I had you one like yours. But ultimately, it doesn't matter one little bit what sort of accent I have, because an accent isn't an ultimate thing. But our belief in God is an ultimate thing. And so the question is, how can we know which worldview is right? Which worldview is true? How can we be sure... Um, how, whether we are believing the right belief. How do we know the right belief to believe? And these are fundamental questions. These are ultimate questions. But first of all, let's take a moment to, to define what a worldview is. Now, Jeff Myers and David Noble, in their book, Understanding the Times, define a worldview like this. A worldview is a pattern of ideas, of beliefs, convictions and habits that help us make sense of God, the world and our relationship to God and the world. A worldview provides a map to help us know where we need to go in life, the distance between where we are and where we need to go and how best to get from where we are to where we need to be. A worldview is a pattern that helps us make sense of the deep things of life. It provides us a map to show where to go in life. Now, if you were to ask a fish to describe their worldview, the fish would have no idea. And if you were to ask the, the average person who identifies as a Christian the same question, I expect that they would similarly have little idea. And I think that the reason is that in church we're great at bringing words and concepts out of our pocket and waving them around. Uh, words like sin and grace, the cross, atonement, justification, etc. But there's no overarching story. There's nothing to glue them together. There's no worldview. But if we know where to look, we will find that the Bible gives us a worldview, a way to view the world. Listen to Nancy Piercy's words. The Bible is a comprehensive account of the structure of reality, a rational and real-world account of the history of the universe, a verifiable storyline of the unfolding of the cosmos. Greg Kokel says this, 
Every religion tells a story of reality. Every philosophy and outlook on life is a take on the way someone thinks the world actually is. And then Coco goes on to say, all worldviews are not the same. Some have pieces that fit together internally better than others. That's That means that they make sense, you know, all the way through. If you were to chop them here and chop them at the end and have a look at how they look inside, there will be a consistency through. So he says that some have pieces that fit together internally much better than others. And some have pieces that fit reality, as in what you observe, much better than others. Most of the time our worldview will be operating in the background quietly working away. It's a bit like our lungs breathing or our heart beating. It's not something we consciously do. It's not something that we have to think about. But it's just there. Now the thing with our worldview is is that it affects everything. Even though it's operating in the background, it affects everything. It affects what coffee we buy, whether or not we go to church, what TV shows we watch, what news anchors we trust, where we choose to live, how we choose to invest, etc., etc., etc. But because it's quietly working away in the background, like I said, and uh, because we aren't even aware of it, we don't notice it, even though it's this massively powerful force working on our lives, this engine that is helping us make sense of God and the world and our relationship to God and the world. So today, I want to briefly outline the three main worldviews in a way that's simple to remember and then take a few minutes to demonstrate that the worldview um, contained in the Bible answers some of the deepest questions we have. Now, a lot of my thoughts are taken from Greg Kokel's book, The Story of Reality, a really excellent read. And there are other sources, but this is the main one. There are seven billion people on planet Earth, each with their family, community, society, country, religion, perspectives, and worldviews. But the cool thing is, is that we can pretty much split everyone on earth into one of three worldviews, regardless of their social standing, uh, the amount of coin in their purse, their skin colour, their gender pronoun, they can all be divided into one of three worldviews, and let me tell you what they are. The first one is materism, or atheism. The second one is mindism, or pantheism. And the third one is godism, or theism. And this is how Norman Geisler and Frank Turek describe the difference between these, these three worldviews. A materist, also known as an atheist, is someone who does not believe in any type of God. If we imagine a painter painting something, then the materist, or someone who believes that there is only matter, would believe that what looks like a painting has always existed and no one painted it. For the atheist, all that matters is matter. There is no spiritual, there is no God, there is no afterlife. There we, therefore, we call atheists materists. Now, a mindist, also known as a pantheist, is someone who believes in an impersonal God that literally is the universe, that God and the universe are one. So rather than making the painting, mindists believe that God is the painting, that God is this book, that God is the tree, that God is me, that God is you, etc., and mindist or pantheistic religions include Hinduism and the New Age. The famous author Eckhart Tolle would be a, an example of a mindist, of a pantheist. Listen to his words. 
The whole is made up of existence and being, the manifested and the unmanifested, the whole and God. So when you become aligned with the whole, you become a conscious part of the interconnectedness of the whole and its purpose, the emergence of consciousness into the world. And really what he's saying here is that our goal is to get absorbed into the whole so that our consciousness becomes part of this greater consciousness. And so for the mind, this salvation comes from unlocking what's already inside you. Salvation is becoming one with the spiritual all that is everything. And for the mind, it's not matter that is everything. It's the mind, it's the spirit, spiritual things that are everything. That's why we call them mindists. Now the third category are the goddists, also known as theists. And someone who is a goddess, a theist, is someone who believes in a personal God who created the universe but is not part of the universe. Now this would be roughly equivalent to a painter and a painting. God is like the painter and his creation is like the painting. His attributes are expressed in it, but God is not the painting. And major theistic religions are Christianity, Judaism and Islam. So... For the goddess, salvation comes from outside, from God, which is why we call them uh, goddesses, theists. Matter is an ultimate, mind is an ultimate, only God is ultimate. And so for the materist, uh, there is no painter, only the painting that has always existed. For the mindist, the painter and the painting are one. And for the goddess, the painter is separate from the painting. The painter created the painting. And remember that they cannot all be right. They cannot. If the mindist is right, then the matterists and the goddess are by default wrong. It makes sense. It's simple logic. It's, it's like someone who says, well, your, your dad exists, and someone who says, your dad does not exist, and someone who says that your dad is you, well, they cannot all be right. So as we move on, I, the, a simple way for us to remember these, these three worldviews is that theism or, or, or godism says that God made all. Pantheism or mindism says that God is all. And atheism or materism says that there is no God at all. Now, here's a, a sample of the questions that we're going to be looking at in our grow groups this week. And if you've not yet signed up for a grow group, I would strongly encourage you to, because this is where the growth and uh, the fellowship happens. So, first question says, describe a situation in which you discovered that your worldview was very different from the worldview of someone else. Number two, with... With the differing worldviews, worldviews, do you think that Christians should just mind their own business and stop trying to convert people? Why or why not? Read Genesis chapter 1. According to Dan, why is the miracle of creation so important in how we view or address the rest of the Bible? And fourth question, in Canada, do you think that we live in a largely materist or a mindist or a goddess society? Explain your answer. Now, you've been very good this morning, you've been very patient, but maybe you're thinking, Dan, when am I going to 
get to open my Bible. I've been sitting here patiently and all you've been talking about is philosophy and worldviews and materism and stuff. Well, now it's time we open the Bible. So please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's our scripture for today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we often read this verse with the same excitement that we would read the intro to Star Wars long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And we think that this introduction has its place at the start of the story, and it kind of sets the rest of the story in some vague sort of context. But then we move on to the good stuff, to the rest of the story. And we think that this intro, just like the intro to Star Wars, isn't super important. That's not the case. This verse is the foundation stone for the rest of the Bible. This is the one on which the rest of Scripture rests. Because if Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is true, then everything else in the Bible is at least, at least possible. If God created the universe and created the natural laws and created matter ex nihilo out of nothing, then everything else in the Bible from manna falling from heaven to the crossing of the Red Sea to Jesus turning water into wine to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead to Jesus even being raised from the dead himself is at least within the realm of plausibility. If the miracle of God creating the universe is on the table then all the lesser miracles contained in the Bible, even Jesus rising from the dead, are also on the table. And so this is why it's important that we understand this as we read through the book of Joshua. Because if God made the heavens and the earth, then he could also part the Jordan River. He could knock down the walls of Jericho. Think about it. If an Iron Man can swim 3.86 kilometers and then cycle 180.25 kilometers and then run 42.2 kilometers, then you know that he can swim a lap around the local pool. And that's why I think this verse is placed at the beginning. Because if it's believed, then everything else is possible. Therefore, once this one thing is dealt with, God creating the universe, then we don't need to come to a crisis of faith every time a miracle is mentioned in the Bible. We just say, okay, this is the sort of world that God made. And also get this, if God created the universe, then this story is all about him. And it's not about us. Listen to these very powerful words. The story is not so much about God's wonderful plan for your life as it is about your life for God's plan. Let that sink in. God's purposes are eternal, not yours. And once you're completely uh, clear on this fact, many things are going to change. But here's the problem. People often have a problem with God being in charge. They struggle with this. They see the evil taking place in the world and they conclude, how can there be a God with all this mess? And that's a fair question, one that needs to be addressed. But what's the alternative to there being a God? Because if mindism is true, then you have no one to turn to when faced with the evil of the world except yourself. Because God is you. You are the ultimate authority. And suffering is merely an illusion. Suffering is something that needs to be transcended through karma and reincarnation until oneness with everything can happen. 
When faced with suffering, with mindism, you, you're on your own. Now, if materism is true, then there's no one else at all. Just an empty universe of matter, of physical stuff. There is no justice. There is no higher court. There is no ultimate being to turn to. There is just nihilism. There is just nothingism. There's just you. And like with mindism, when faced with suffering, with materism, you're on your own. In the words of another, in the final analysis, if you believe in materism, life is ultimately empty, meaningless, purposeless, cold and void. And think about this. If there is no painter creating the painting, if there is no author writing the story, then where do we get our ideas of right and wrong from? Every time we argue about right and wrong, every time we feel repulsion against someone who's in the news for doing something unthinkable, where do we get our sense of good and evil from? Is it just from ourselves? Is it just a case of the majority ruling? I was just listening to a podcast this week uh, where the podcaster interviewed two atheists, um, two materists, and he asked them where they got their idea of right and wrong from, if there isn't any God. And one of them said, well, from the voice of the majority. And the interview responded, the interviewer responded with something like this. So if you were in Nazi Germany where the majority was speaking, would you say it was morally okay to gather up Jews and to kill them? And the one materist thought about it and said, well, yes. And the other looked at his colleague and shouted, no. The Christian interviewer said he saw the first materist struggling with answering yes, but he had to in order to be consistent with his belief that there is no ultimate lawgiver, that it's the majority that rules. This is called the moral argument. And it's a powerful argument in favour of the goddess view, that there is a god who in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. And the, and the amazing thing is that according to Romans chapter 1 verse 20, God has been peppering clues throughout all that he has made, that he is here, that he exists. Listen to Romans Chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Like I said... On the Sunday at the end of each month, we're going to take a break from our regular series and look at these evidences that God has left. That as we grab hold of them, they will give us confidence in his word. We're going to be looking at the signposts that God has left in nature, in science, in philosophy, in the Bible itself, that overwhelmingly indicate the presence of a God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth and who since then has been communicating to us, communicating with us. And I hope today that we leave here really thinking about what our worldview is, really considering it, because it's a thing of ultimate importance. And just like those fish at the beginning, we're swimming in our reality, in our worldview. Many people are moving through life thinking that this is all that there is. 
that this fish tank called the world and those that we're swimming with is all that there is. But the Bible shows us that matter alone cannot account for the universe in which we live, that mind alone cannot count for our existence. But what can account for what exists, both physical and spiritual, both matter and mind, is a being outside of our fish tank world who created the fish tank world and all that is contained within, including the moral law, the concept of right or wrong. And we call him God. And the good news is that he did not just create the world and leave us to our own devices. No, he entered this world and became one of us, just as if a human became a fish in order to communicate to the other fish that everything was not okay. We, and we call the one who came Jesus. This is the one that the story of the Bible is all about. And I strongly believe, and I hope that you either do believe this or you will believe, that a worldview, uh, a story with Jesus in the centre, is the best way to interpret life, to account for evil and suffering, to account for good and truth.